Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I will be reading from verse 18 through verse 25. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, as we watch events unfold on TV or on the internet or in the papers, and we see violence and images of confusion, of blasphemy, of hate, uh, we're struck by the need that we have for you to believe again that you are in control, to know that you can learn nothing, to know that you're good, and to know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church. Lord, we need you. As we consider a new season, a new fall, a new school year, many parents feel the anxiety of, of entering in again. Students certainly feel it as well. As we look at what's going on in our nation, these are unique times, and we're tempted to really fear. But Lord, we need you to remind us of who we are in you, that the things that we have been singing and saying and praying and hearing are true. Lord, it makes us long for your return and it makes us sober to consider what it means to belong to you and to love even our enemies. God, I pray that you would bless our time now with the word. I pray that you would really focus us, that the things that are noisy in our lives right now would quiet down, that the anxieties that are burdening our heart, Lord, that we would cast them even now upon you because you care for us. And that we would really, by the power of your Holy Spirit, hear truth and be reminded of the cross and what happened there and what you accomplished and continue to accomplish that we may be made more like you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On September 10th, 1997, Rich Mullins who was the songwriter for many, many songs we, we sang in the church in the 80s or listened to that pointed us to Jesus. Our God is an awesome God, perhaps his best known. On September 10th, 1997, nine days before he would be killed in a car accident, he walked into an abandoned church. He had a cassette recorder that he had just bought from Kmart and his guitar, a couple of other instruments, and he began to record songs about Jesus. 
This was going to be his next album. The working title was 10 Songs About Jesus. And the burden that he had for this album was that he, in his own words, would say, I had lost sight of Jesus. I was singing about Jesus. I was telling people about the cross. I was worshiping, so it seemed. But deep down, I really had lost the affection for Christ. He wasn't central. I would say he was. I believed the things of the gospel to be true. But I had just lost that gaze. I had lost that focus. And so he went in to record this album. He was killed nine days later, traveling with Mitch McVicker in their Jeep, fatal accident. Mitch would go on to live, but not rich, except in heaven. They talk about him saying, you know, he really never felt comfortable here on earth. He was one of those men who really had one foot in heaven and one on earth. And so he was home. That's the home we all long for. And he is home. He's been there a long time now. But I loved what he said. And I loved that the Lord was so gracious to him that he was taking him to a place to say, Rich, you're singing about me, but you're not focused on me. You're singing about my cross, but you're not really, really gazing upon the work that happened there and the work that continues to happen as I reign as king. And so he went and he began to record these songs. Those songs were never recorded professionally by him, but you can listen to them. There's a disc that was produced about a year after his death. And then several of his musician friends, Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, others like that, recorded those same 10 songs with instruments in a professional way. It's a wonderful album. It's called The Jesus Record. About the same time that Rich Mullins confessed that he had lost sight of that which was central, another singer-songwriter was going through a similar experience. But instead of being taken into an abandoned church where he would write 10 new songs about Jesus, he felt called to write a book. And the book he wrote, published in 2000, was called A Violent Grace, written by Michael Card. Similar to Rich Mullins, Michael Card confesses that the focus on Jesus and the cross had suddenly disappeared. Page 15 of his book, A Violent Grace, he says, I must confess that my own ministry, which began with a singular focus on the cross of Christ, has slowly shifted towards more popular and palatable themes. I used to relish the criticism that I was preaching and singing about the cross too much. In fact, the key verse for the first 10 years of my ministry was, quote, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. What happens? I didn't say what happened. I said, what happens? Like these two brothers, we we don't intend it to happen, but through time, the central focus on Jesus and his cross, that bold statement that I will boast in nothing except Christ and him crucified, loses its laser focus. Many other things began to dilute our affection. We become distracted by arguing. We become distracted by serving. We become distracted by many things that actually give the appearance of gospel ministry, but many have done that and lost that first love. 
God in his graciousness comes to us and reminds us of what is most important. And from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you see that time and time again as the Lord simply grabs hold of his people and says, refocus, remember me, remember what matters, remember what I did. And yet in the noisy world in which we live, it's easy for the cross, which should be the anchor of our life, the one Christ died on, to simply become an additive. It's simply something else added to the list of things that we believe in and pursue, even in the midst of this broken world. One summer before moving here, I held this book in my hand while I was listening to The Jesus Record by Rich Mullins. I had no idea what I just described to you about Rich, and I had no idea that Michael Carden felt the same way. The reason it meant so much to me in 2002 was because my soul was brittle. My public face looked so good. Ministry was big, it was strong, there were people coming to faith and growing, and yet the interior of my life was so dry, like a desert, and I was scared. My first thought was, I can tell no one. I really felt that way. I didn't have anybody I thought I could tell. And then the Lord grabbed hold of me and he showed me two other people who had been very public, who had written wonderful music. One who was an elder in the PCA for some time, that being Michael Card, who used to take his lyrics to the elders of the church and say, is there anything about these that's not biblical? They too had gone through a patch of dryness. And what was it that anchored them? It was the cross of Jesus. I come this morning with this season between now and when we launch a series in the fall about the book of Acts, with three or four Sundays to talk about something we actually talk about every week, and that's the cross of Jesus. There's not a time in this church on a Sunday morning when we are not pointing people to the cross of Christ. But I'm telling you, just because we point people to it doesn't mean you're really focusing on it. It doesn't mean you're truly sitting beneath the cross saying, Christ, show me more. It doesn't mean that you really are taking hold, the one who's taken hold of you and saying, make me like Jesus. And so this morning and next week and for the two weeks that follow, I really want us to center in on this idea of what does it mean to be at the cross with Jesus. Christ understands everything about us. He understands the good things that keep us from the great. He understands the way in which ministry, serving in the church as an officer, or somebody that's cleaning, or somebody that's really caring for the first grade girls or the crawlers. He understands that over time, it can take its toll on you. Jesus knows that each day with him is not necessarily sweeter than the day before. He knows that we go through seasons in this life between here and eternity when we hit walls and we need to be renewed. That's why he gave us the Old and the New Testament. Where in the Old Testament, David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. That's what happens to us. So here, Jesus comes to his disciples and he's, he preaches in the gospel. He's beginning to turn their attention to something that's going to happen to him. 
When Jesus asked the question of the disciples here in Luke 9, he has just finished feeding the 5,000. We know there were more, probably 12 to 15, maybe even more than that. And 12 basketfuls of bread and fish were left over, this abundant God. But then Jesus says to the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds have always existed. The crowds saw the things that Jesus did and wanted to see it. I mean, he called people from the grave. He cast out demons. He walked on water and enabled another man to walk on water. He calmed the storms. And when he calmed that storm, do you remember what the disciples said to each other? Who is this man? And now Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, he said to his 12, who do the crowds say that I am? And the crowds, well, this is what they said. The disciples report, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. What Luke points out here is that the crowd was confused. And the crowds continue to be confused. The crowds continue to be confused about who Jesus is and who Jesus was. What he accomplished, what he still accomplishes. Jesus then moved the question from what do the crowds say to the disciples. In verse 20, he says, but who do you say that I am? We don't have a response except that from Peter. And Peter said, the Christ of God. And he's right. He's right. He is the Christ of God. And as soon as Peter says the Christ of God, then Jesus essentially goes on to answer his own question. Who do the crowd say I am? Who do you say I am, the Christ of God? Well, now let me tell you who I am. And he says, I'm a son of man. He didn't say it that way, but he tells them to strictly, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. And then he says, the son of man, that's what he called himself, the son of man must suffer many things. So I want you to imagine hearing this conversation. They're sitting there together. Jesus says, who do the crowd say I am? Elijah, John the Baptist, some other prophet that's risen. Who do you say I am? Nobody speaks except for Peter, Christ the God. And then Jesus says, tell this to no one. Now imagine you're sitting there and you're about to hear what he says next. The son of man must suffer many things. They didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what suffering was about to come towards Jesus. He goes on, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. I want to focus this morning just for a few more minutes and then on into next week on this idea of Christ's suffering. Why did Jesus have to suffer. Jesus Christ had to suffer because God is a perfect, holy, righteous God. And the people that he created, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory. What that means 
is something really horrific, monstrous, took place. And in order for God's people to be redeemed, a sacrifice had to be made. And Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the only one that could be the sacrifice, the perfect lamb. And in order for it to happen the way it did in God's plan, this suffering had to take place. And there are many ways that we can describe the the suffering of Christ. We can speak of the gore of the cat of nine tails flogging his body 39 times. We can think of the crown that was pressed upon his skull and the, the blood that would have run down his face. We can think about the horror of the hammer hitting the nails as they go into his feet and his hands. We can think about the silence as the spear goes into his side, even as two next to him are in agony with broken bones. We can think in certain ways about the gore and agony of the cross, and we should. If you don't want to use your imagination, you can read Isaiah 53, and I encourage you to. It speaks of what Christ, in a prophetic way, is going to go through. But I want to add a word to the suffering of Christ that you might not consider very often. Christ suffering on the cross, the suffering that he was pointing to here was a perfect suffering. His suffering for you was perfect. Not one more ounce of suffering was needed. Not another second, minute, hour. His suffering for you on the cross was perfect. We often say that Christ loves us because the word tells us that. His love is described to us as being so wide, so deep, so long, so high, which in the Greek means perfect description or perfect dimensions. If Christ Jesus could love you any more, he would, but he can't. He can't because if he could, his love wouldn't be perfect. Well, I want to say the same thing about suffering. If Christ Jesus could suffer for you anymore, he would, but he can't. His suffering on that cross was a perfect suffering. And when Jesus Christ cried out those final words, it is finished. It meant that the perfect sacrifice, the perfect suffering had been accomplished. No more was now necessary. And he did it because he loved his father. He did it because of the glory of his father. And he did it because he loves you. We are not afraid to admit how important that is. But there is a power that exists in the cross still to this day that we need to see again. And so my encouragement to you, my dear brother and sister, is to remember the cross. Do you remember where you were the first time 
when you truly heard the story of the cross and believed it was true. For some of you, that might actually be today. The cross is powerful, not because of what only happened there 2,000 years ago, but what the cross continues to do when we, his children, go and sit before it. So over the next few weeks, I want to ask you to pray that every member of our church and all who come as guests would see something new of the cross, that we would see the many things that are distracting us like they did Rich Mullins and Michael Card and me 16 years ago. And since then too. And that we might see anew the wonder of what it means to have been rescued by this God who loves us perfectly and suffered for us perfectly and now reigns as our king perfectly. Why? Because he could say at the end of that perfect suffering, it is finished. Alleluia. Jesus, you did it. And then you were raised from the dead. You walked upon the earth a number of days after you were killed and after you rose. And then those same men, not all of them, but those men that were your disciples, watched you ascend into heaven. Those very ones to whom you said, who do you say I am? And soon after that one Lord that said he would die for you and then denied that he knew you was brought before those same leaders that killed you. And he was told to not speak anymore in your name. And Peter said, judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to obey God or man, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. From that moment on, Jesus, Peter wouldn't, would not just describe you as you are Christ of God. He would always tell of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you grab hold of us and set our eyes on the cross of our Savior? And would you transform our hearts and minds to think and to feel as we should as your beloved sons and daughters. We pray this, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.